And let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning as we gather here as your church, even as we come boldly before you now in Christ alone, this is our prayer, that you would find us faithful. That by grace, that by new mercies each morning, by wisdom that you provide, by strength for each day, that you would find us faithful. Heavenly Father, even as we gather here, we know our hearts. We are a wicked people. We do not gather here proclaiming that we are holy or that we are, are good or better than anyone else. We gather here because we know how wicked we are and we know how great your grace is. We gather here because we rejoice in who you are and we come to worship you and Christ alone. And so, Heavenly Father, even in this hour, as we look at this passage, these few verses here in the middle of Hebrews, may you challenge us, may you encourage us in our faith. Remind us of what it is that we believe and who we are trusting in. Remind us of the hope that we have so that we can go from here bold and encouraged to reach the world around us with the gospel of Jesus Christ. May you be honored in all that is said and done in this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you all remember Y2K? I was a young man. Um, but I remember the craziness surrounding the turn of the century. There was fear there as we entered into not just a new century, but a new millennium. I don't fully understand what the fear was, but as far as I can wrap my mind around it, there was fear that these computers that we had come to become so dependent on in the 80s into the 90s, that they would just go crazy and they wouldn't be able to handle the change of the millennium. There was fear that, that at the change of the millennium, everything would, would just go crazy and we would end up in some apocalyptic future. You guys remember that? There were three basic responses to Y2K. There were those who did nothing, just kind of shrugged their shoulders. I don't think anything's going to happen. It's just going to go on like it always has. They did not believe that anything would happen, and so they did nothing to prepare for it. Then, there were those who did something. My parents kind of fell into this category. They weren't sure. It was all above their head. They didn't understand, but, you know, better safe than sorry. We'll stick a couple jugs of water away. We'll stick a couple things of unperishable food away, and then just in case, we can make it a few days at least. Uh, and so I remember, I remember carrying uh, some jugs of water out to the shed and sitting it on a shelf, and I mean, we wouldn't have made it a few weeks, but we'd have made it a few days. I mean, there was a little bit there. 
There were many people who fell into that category. They, They did their due diligence. They did something. They set something aside just in case. But then there were those who were convinced beyond the shadow of a doubt that the apocalypse was coming. These are the people. They built shelters. They stockpiled tons of food and water as well as weapons and ammunition. They were ready for what was coming. Looking back, obviously nothing did happen. The year 2000 came and went without even a small glitch. But thinking through that, it does kind of make an interesting study of humanity, does it not? Why is it that different people responded so differently? There was real fear, real nervousness in the air. And the reality is that the way that people responded to Y2K was directly affected by what people believed about Y2K. Those who believed that the end of civilization as we know it was upon us prepared as if the end of civilization as we know it was upon us. Why? Because that is what they believed to be true. And the reality is that what you believe has a direct effect on how you behave. What you really, truly believe will affect how you behave. And as we turn our attention to Hebrews 11 this morning, the author of Hebrews will make this same point, that what you believe has a direct effect on how you behave. Specifically, what you believe about Jesus Christ will have and must have a direct effect on your life. So we turn our attention to Hebrews 11, verses 1 to 3. As we come to this passage, we will see both faith described and faith displayed. Move this down a little bit. Faith described and faith displayed. First thing we see is faith described. Verse 1 begins this way, Now faith is... Obviously, we've been going through the book of Hebrews. We are 10 chapters in at this point. And if you're like me, and you just kind of think of the book of Hebrews generally, it always seemed odd to me that this faith chapter, Hebrews 11, was in the middle of Hebrews. I always thought of Hebrews as this deep doctrine, and there's this really cool chapter in the middle about all these guys. It just didn't seem to fit, and yet it does fit. Perfectly. In fact, one of the major themes of the book of Hebrews, as we have seen working our way through it, is persevering faith. All the way back, as early as Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, the author of Hebrews is pleading with his readers to not drift away. Do not drift away. Persevere. Do not fall back. It's a theme that's repeated again and again throughout Hebrews. We see it not only in chapter 2, but in chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 6, chapter 10, and here again in chapter 11. The idea of persevering faith gets to the very heart of the book of Hebrews, the very reason for its writing. Saving faith is not momentary faith. 
But saving faith holds fast. Saving faith perseveres. As we've learned the context of Hebrews, we've come to see the necessity of this focus on persevering faith. These warning passages all throughout Hebrews. Remember that the author of Hebrews is writing to an audience on the brink of persecution. Not just socially by their fellow Jews who have turned their backs on them, but even physically and politically by a Roman government that has declared Christianity illegal. And so as you think of of the audience to whom the author of Hebrews is writing, he's writing to those who are facing these realities. And there's a temptation for them to run back to Judaism. Because not only is there acceptance and comfort for them in the law and its sacrificial system, there's safety as well. Because Judaism was accepted by the Roman government, unlike Christianity. There is comfort there. There is safety there. There is family there. And the author of Hebrews is writing to them and pleading with them. Do not fall away. Don't leave Christ to run after comfort. Don't leave Christ to run after acceptance. You have all that you need in Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews here turns their focus to Jesus as he calls them to persevere. Notice what he does not do. Nowhere in Hebrews does he promise safety from Rome or acceptance from Jerusalem. He knows that he cannot promise those things. Jesus himself promises his followers that they will face persecution and hate. So instead of promising acceptance, instead of promising safety, the author of Hebrews turns their attention and puts forth Jesus in all his glory. He turns their attention from persecution and draws their attention to the one who is superior to angels and Moses and Joshua. The one who is the heir of all things. The one who is seated at the right hand of the Father. He calls them to see Jesus, the high priest, after the order of Melchizedek, the promised one, whose priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood. He calls them to see Jesus, whose blood is the blood of the new covenant that brings salvation and hope. And so here in Hebrews, against the shadow of the law, the author puts forth Jesus, the radiance of the glory of God. So at the end of chapter 10, the author of Hebrews is starting to transition in the book. He's transitioning away from these deep doctrinal truths. This is who Jesus is, and this is what Jesus has done. And as you get to Hebrews 10, 25, he starts transitioning to, and this is what it means for you. And in the end of Hebrews, he he starts... Even back in verse 22... How should we respond to this Jesus then? We should draw near. We should hold fast. We should consider one another. But if you do not hold fast and draw near, you will face condemnation. If you turn from the faith, if you abandon the faith, that shows that you have never truly believed and you will face 
the wrath of a holy God. Then you come to the end of chapter 10, verse 39, and he encourages his readers once again. But that is not you. You and I, we are not of those who draw back to perdition. We are not of those who never really truly believed and who fell away. We are those who believe to the saving of the soul. We are those whose faith perseveres. So as we come to chapter 11 then, it makes sense. We are those whose faith perseveres. What does that look like? What is faith? That's what he's answering here. We are those whose faith perseveres to the saving of the soul. And this is what that looks like. This is what that faith is. Faith is. And before jumping into 37 verses of examples of faith, he begins here with a short description of faith. And there's two words that he focuses on. In the New King James, the words are substance and evidence. In other versions, it's the words confidence and conviction. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. In the New King James, as I said there, that word is substance. The ESV, it is assurance. In the NIV, it is confidence. When you look at those three words, the way it's translated in those three different translations, substance, assurance, and confidence, there's one word that kind of stands out that doesn't really seem to fit. Right? Assurance and confidence, they, those go together, but substance seems strange. But the reality is that it is a legitimate translation and it focuses on the realness and the hope of faith. There is substance to our confidence. It is saving faith that stands on a solid foundation. Therefore, we have assurance and confidence because of the substance on which we stand. MacArthur points out, faith is living in a hope that is so real that it gives absolute assurance. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Faith is not wishful thinking. It is a settled confidence. A settled confidence that gives us direction and purpose in life. A confidence so strong that it is described as substance. It is the substance of the things hoped for. This substance on which we stand, the solid foundation on which we stand, is the promises that our immutable, faithful, omnipotent, sovereign God has given us. It is the hope that we have, and hope implies promise. It's all these promises God has given us in Christ, therefore we have hope. These are the things that we are hoping for and confident in. The substance of our faith is in the nature of our promise giver. Remember as a kid, one of the shows that my family would often gather around after dinner to watch was the Andy Griffith Show. I remember regularly watching it with my dad 
And I remember many of the quotes that my dad would go on to then quote throughout the next day. But there's one line in particular from Andy Griffith Show that I'll, I'll always remember. Because I remember my dad thought it was so funny because he thought it was funny, I thought it was funny. And he would go around and he would always use this line. I don't remember much about the episode. All I remember is, I think it was Andy saying, there are three ways to get information around Mayberry. There's telephone, telegraph, and telefloid. <laughs> the idea is that Floyd the barber is a gossip. If you want something to get out, you tell Floyd. If you don't, you don't tell Floyd. If you want something kept quiet, you do not want Floyd to know that. Because if Floyd finds out, there is no confidence, there is no substance to the hope that he will keep it quiet. Why? Because he has proven himself to be untrustworthy. He has shown himself to be a gossip. Brothers and sisters, there is substance to our faith because of our God. He has proven himself. He has shown himself to be faithful and true as he said he was. We have confidence in the things that he has promised us. We have confidence in the things that we hope for because he is a faithful God. And so our faith, there is substance to it. There, we are convinced of this. We are living as if this is true. There is confidence there. But as you get to the second half of verse 1, it's not just confidence, but there's also evidence of things not seen. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is the evidence of things not seen. Again, that word evidence is translated three different ways. The New King James here is evidence. The ESV is conviction. And the NIV is assurance. Really what we have here is a parallel phrase emphasizing the surety of our hope. But this word carries it a little further. You see, where substance implies a settled inward confidence, evidence implies a definite outward response. Or to put it another way, real confidence is displayed in evident conviction. Real confidence is displayed in evident conviction. For instance, I can be convinced that... Uh, Running and eating healthy are good for me. I, I am confident of that. But do I have the conviction to change my daily routine in order to get out and to run? Do I have the conviction to change my diet? And if I do not have the conviction to change to do the things that I believe are good for me, do I really believe that they're that good for me? If I did believe that running was healthy for me, I would probably run. If I was really... Not just, I think it's good for me, but if I was convinced that I need to do this, I have to do this, I would do it, would I not? It's not just being convinced or confident. There is a conviction to take action that is needed. In fact, I would submit to you this morning that confidence without conviction is just self-deceit. It's just self-deceit.
It is one thing for these Hebrew believers to to say that they believe when their family and their friends accept them and when the government promises them protection, protection to their right to worship, when everything is going well. But the question is, does your faith have conviction when your family and your friends turn their backs on you? Or when the government not only strips away your right, but begins to target you and to persecute you when you lose your business, when your friends start losing their lives. Does your faith have conviction then? Or to take it out of the context of Hebrews, how confident is your faith when your house burns down to the ground and everything inside it is lost? Or how How much conviction does your faith have when your business into which you have poured everything fails and you are left with no prospects? Or is there conviction with your faith when you are diagnosed with a terminal disease or when your child is stillborn or when your spouse drops dead at a young age and you are left to raise these kids by yourself or you find yourself all alone? Does your faith have conviction then? I'm often challenged as I read through Scripture. And as I put myself into the story that I am reading, often asking myself, if I found myself in this situation, would I, would I have believed? If I was David, would I have gone out there and fought that giant, or would I have let him blaspheme my God? It's one thing to confess faith in the comfort of the palace. It's another thing entirely to cling to faith by conviction when like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you find yourself standing before a giant furnace and you can feel the heat emanating forth. Because you see, in that moment, you've never seen God. You've probably never even seen a miracle but you see that furnace and you can feel those flames and you know that in a few minutes you will be engulfed by them. In those moments, does your faith have conviction? Faith is not merely confidence to believe. It is conviction to keep believing. Even as in Romans 4.18, when God promised Abraham, an old man, that he would have offspring, it says that he kept believing against all hope. Against all human or natural hope. He kept believing. Why? Because he believed that God could do it. Every natural law may tell me that it is not possible, but God tells me it is. And then after he's told that, as the years go by, several, several years, and he is only getting older, and it is only getting more and more impossible, and yet he still believes. Faith is not merely confidence to believe. It is conviction to keep believing against all hope. Faith recognizes that the truth is the truth regardless of my circumstances. That God is God, regardless of what I see or feel. 
what I see and feel, these things do not change who God is or the promises that he has made to me. He's a faithful God, and I can be a faithful follower. Do you have conviction to keep believing in what you do not see? It is the evidence of things not seen. Not just future things, but even past things, even present things. In just a few verses, in, in verse 6, and then later in verse 27, we don't see God, but we believe that he exists. In verse 3, we weren't there for creation, but we believe it happened as God said it happened. We have not seen the fulfillment of all of God's promises, but we believe that they will be, believe, be fulfilled because we believe God. That is what faith is. It is not just the substance of things hoped for, but it is also the evidence of things not seen. It is conviction even when I don't see those things. Warren Wearsby rightly recognizes that true Bible faith is not blind optimism or manufactured hope-so feeling. Neither is it an intellectual assent to a doctrine. It is certainly not believing in spite of evidence. That would be superstition. True Bible faith is confident obedience to God's word in spite of circumstances and consequences. True Bible faith endures. Because true Bible faith believes in an immutable, all-powerful God who is faithful to his word. So here we see faith defined in these two words, substance or confidence and evidence, conviction. Next we see faith displayed. Faith displayed. Here in verse 1, after a very brief, convicting, and encouraging description of faith, the author gives here a few examples. In fact, he's about to launch into 37 verses of examples of this man, and this man, and this woman, and, and look what all these people did. Look at their faith. But he starts a little closer to home here in verses 2 and 3. And first he starts with the elders. For by it, that is faith, that is faith that is confident and faith that has conviction, by it the elders obtained a good testimony. Our first question is, well, who are these elders? Well, these elders are people of old. Or they're really everyone who is saved under the old covenant. Everyone at this point who in history from this point back had placed their faith in God, who had believed him, who had been saved. Everyone, even under the old covenant, even these elders, these people of old, they did not find acceptance with God through obedience. They found it through faith. It was by faith that they had a good testimony. And here the Lord bears witness on their behalf, and many of them are about to be listed in the coming verses, not because of their great deeds, but because of their faith. Verse 2 would be a particularly powerful statement to these Hebrews 
Why? Because they are so tempted to run back to the law. They want to run back to the sacrificial system. What the author of Hebrews says here is, your ancestors were not saved by that law, and you will not be saved by that law. They found acceptance with God in a good testimony through faith. By believing God. In fact, this is the same point that Paul stresses in Romans 4. Even great men as such as David and Abraham who did all of these great deeds, they were not saved by these great deeds that they did, but they were saved because they believed. Against all hope, they believed. And they were saved by the grace of God through that faith. It is not by works that the elders obtained a good testimony. It is not by the works of the law. It is not by sacrifices that they found acceptance with God. It is by faith. They believed. Salvation has always only been by faith. In fact, not only did the elders receive a good testimony by believing, but even you yourselves and me, the audience to whom I am writing, and I myself, we know this faith. It's the own faith, uh, the own, our own faith that we have in the creation of the world. Specifically connecting back to, to the conviction based on evidence of things not seen. We already believe in things we've not seen. None of us were there for creation, and yet we believe. We believe that God has done it as God said, because God is God. Why is it so easy for us to believe God for little things today? Why is it so, or why is it so easy for us to say that we believe God for our eternal security? And we struggle to believe God when little things come up, when life gets difficult. I can trust you for eternity, but I can't trust you with this bill. I believe what you say about creation, but I don't know if I can believe what you say about salvation. We believe that God created it out of nothing. With just his word, that is a powerful God. And if you believe that God can do that, if you believe that he can create with just his word, with nothing else that existed, just out of nothing, don't you think that that same God can save you by faith? Don't you think that that same God will be faithful to his word, that he can keep the promises that he has made? Contrary to what Rome or Greece or Egypt or any other empire or scientist who has risen up over the course of history 
regardless of what they would say, we believe in what we have not yet seen because we believe in God. So brothers and sisters, have faith. Persevering faith with confidence and with conviction. Maybe you're here this morning and your faith has wavered a bit. Maybe you find yourself in a valley this morning, overcome with doubt and unsurety. And this morning, the Lord is calling to you through his word to draw near and to hold fast. Do not fall away. People will let you down. But the Lord will never leave you or forsake you. He is faithful and he will complete in you what he has begun. So hold fast. Hold fast. Look to Jesus. Cling to him. Maybe this morning you're here and you're not necessarily struggling with your faith. I pray that this message has been an encouragement to you, but I would encourage you to remember these truths. Tuck them away. Because the reality is is that if you are not struggling now, you will struggle soon. Life is ups and downs. You will go through some very high mountains and you will go through some very deep and dark valleys. But your God is the same both in the mountains and in the valleys. He does not change. He is faithful and his promises are still true. There will be times when life will not make sense and when God will feel far away. There will be times when you will even ask yourself if God exists. You wouldn't dare say it out loud, but it will cross your head, your mind. Remember these truths in those times and hold fast. Brothers and sisters in Christ, hold fast to the faith. Live not just convinced, but live with faith that has conviction. Saving faith is not just present confidence, but it must include lasting conviction. So cling to Christ and endure. If you are struggling, I would encourage you, even in this next month, next week, go through the rest of Hebrews 11. From this point, the author of Hebrews now will go through and he will give example after example after example of those who believed God. And situation after situation that seemed impossible, and every single one of them throughout all of history found God to be faithful So if you are struggling this morning, if you are struggling this week, if you are struggling next week, come back to this passage. Work your way through Hebrews 11. Find encouragement in your faith. Find a reminder, a call to stand fast.